0: July 27th, 2008. Our message today is called Logistics. It's a Sunday morning and I am excited to be preaching this morning. Uh, In the pastor's corner of your bulletin, you will see uh, that I've written some things about logistics and the etymology of the word and uh, just some neat little facts. I encourage you to read that at some point. Uh, Also be turned into Genesis 41 and I want to Quote to you or read you a part of this. Logistics has to do with the flow of goods, information, and other resources, including energy and people, between the point of origin and the point of consumption, in order to meet a given purpose. Logistics involves the integration of information, transportation, inventory, warehousing, material handling, and packaging. Boy, what a complex definition that is. What it amounts to is that in times of war, times of famine, difficult situations, somebody has to figure out how to get the things that people need to the people that need them, whether that's bullets to a soldier or food to the hungry or water to the thirsty, and that discipline is called logistics. And as I began to dig into that word logistics, I found out that it is Greek-based. Uh, lots of our language is not, but this word is. And the word that it's based on is logos. Well, I've been in the word a long time so that caught my eye. Logos has to do with speech or utterance or expressing a sentiment. But John, the Gospel of John uses logos in an entirely different, unique and unusual way. He says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And word in Greek, that phrase, is logos. And so, the term logos becomes synonymous or virtually synonymous with God in the New Testament. He uses it repeatedly in John and in the epistles. And I started laughing sitting there, and I I guess my mind works a little different than some, but I started thinking, wow, logos and logistics, they both have to do with getting people what they need when they need it. Our God is in the business of supplying you with what you need, even when you don't know that's what you need. For a given purpose. And as I began to think about that, my mind went to Genesis 41, so that's where we're at. Uh, Start in the 28th verse with me. I want to show you one of the first great examples of logistics in use. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. You remember Joseph has interpreted a couple dreams, and the dreams tell about something that's coming. And what is coming is seven years of plenty followed by seven years of great want. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. This is an example of the same thing that happens in world wars, the same thing that happens in large humanitarian efforts. Logistics becomes a problem. It's not that we don't have everything that we need. Seven years of plenty are going to provide everything that we need, but how do we get what we need to the people who need it when they need it? Logistics has to do with the transfer of something needed to the people who need it. And we find out that the Word of God is in the business of doing that as well. So, Pharaoh hears Joseph's suggestion. He says, what we need to do is appoint a logistics officer, which incidentally is an entire branch of the military. How do you get so many tanks to one place? How do you make sure they're all fueled? How do you get the planes there? How do you know you have enough food for all of the soldiers? Our God is in that business. And when I say it's in that business, I want you to reflect on the slideshow you saw before the service. I didn't know that the dump had been shut down before we got there because of rain. When we left to go and we brought a certain amount of food, about 4,000 pounds, a certain amount of money, a certain amount of rice, all of those things, I didn't know that a hurricane was barreling down upon them. Nobody had any idea that there was a Hurricane Dolly that was going to strike Matamoros when we left. But God did. And He got His people what they needed when they needed it. That's good. That's worth That's worth praising God for, isn't it? God got His people what they needed when they needed it. We're going to get to how in a moment. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. A fifth. How much is that for you non-mathematical folks? A fifth. Twenty percent. <laughs> That's quite a tithe, isn't it? Twenty percent. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming, store up the grain under the authority of the Pharaoh, to be kept in the city for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come on Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. Before I move on, I need to digress for a moment. There is a principle called Joseph's storehouse. How many years have you had of plenty in your life? Think about that. Sometimes we get into the habit of saying, woe is me, woe is me, I don't have, I don't have. But when you look back, most of us are pretty well fed, aren't we? How about spiritually have plenty? How many of you have received good teaching for more than just a week or two? Maybe years even. How many of you have been saved a decade in here? If you've been saved ten years, raise your hand. That's a bunch of you. What have you stored up naturally or spiritually over ten years that should be held in reserve for someone? See, most of the time we see ourselves as a nation and a church of consumers. Anything that we have is for our consumption. I want to hear a word that blesses me. Me, Johnny, Susie, us four, no more. What we need to do is have a paradigm shift in our thinking and think if God has given us plenty of teaching, plenty of food, plenty of whatever, it's because He doesn't intend for us to consume it but store it that during years of want we may have something to give with people in need. Do you know that Israel was not allowed to harvest the corners of their fields? Do you know why? Because God cares about the alien and the foreigner and He wanted people who were wandering through Israel to have food to eat. It's a novel thought, but maybe in your own pantry you could set aside the corners of your pantry for food for someone else to eat. The great Passover meals, the sages in Israel's history left their door open in case somebody was passing by so they could feed them. Hmm. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't it funny how impressed Pharaoh was? What's he so impressed about? That somebody would care enough to not consume everything around them, but store it so that when there was need, he could meet those needs. Apparently, Egypt operated an awful lot like America. Spend all you have and what you don't have, get on credit and spend what you don't have. I woke up one day and realized I was living in a prison that my own two hands had built, called debt. And I wish I could say some supernatural miracle happened. And suddenly it was all just alleviated. Actually, Jesus spoke to me one time and said, imagine that I've forgiven all of those debts. And I got excited. Because prior to that I'd been crying. My head was between my knees and I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I got excited and started to dance around. And He said, I did forgive you. You were spiritually bankrupt. And you owed everybody you ever met. And I forgave you. I said, oh Lord, that's awesome. I understand now. I understand. But what about the other?" Ten years later, most of it's gone. We need to learn to live lives that are about other people and not about ourselves, saints. That's the heart of the Gospel. It is the heart of the Gospel. If a man will lay down his life for his friends, there's no greater love than that. How could you say you would lay down your life if you won't give up a box of Twinkies? He said, well, I would, I would. You will. When did you? See, it is always easy to say what we will do. Let's examine what we have done and see whether we're lying to ourselves. How many people do you know that when you start talking about Jesus, they say, but I'm a good person. Come on, how many of you have said it? Really? Well, then let's look back over your life. Is it filled with only goodness? Now, how about in Jesus we can be good people? You know, there is something called data denial that happens. And what happens is despite all the evidence to the contrary, this is what I'm going to say. And if I say it long enough, I begin to believe it think at some point the church has got to quit saying and start doing. That is our motto. That is our theme. Not about Matamoros, Mexico, but about everything. I told you, somebody said, well, we could have a car wash and raise money for the town. No, I said it and I meant it. The next car wash we do here will be absolutely free just to show people we love them and we will not take a dime. God will have to raise up money some other way. So why? What's wrong with car washes? I want to set an example for the neighborhood. We're also going to go cut their grass and we will not take a dime from them. How many years has God spent storing up in you good things? Can't we spend some time just pouring out? I want to. And you'll find out something. We're going to see it in the Word today. Your needs are met when you do that. They're met every time. God will never leave people who are sowing without seed to sow. It may look that way, but I promise it will not finish that way. Okay, so Pharaoh's impressed. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my peeps, and they'll submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's quite an exaltation. That means that in every way, Joseph has become Pharaoh except there is actually also Pharaoh. The two people are going to act in one office. How amazing is that? Kind of a plural unity. That's what the Hebrews mean when they say one. Echad. God has multiple parts and acts in unity. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That's all of Pharaoh's authority. Egypt is the preeminent power on earth. So that would be like saying all the power on the earth I give to you. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Gold in the Bible has to do with divinity. He gets all the authority and he gets divinity. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and men shouted before him, make way. What would be another way to say make way? Prepare the way. So what we have is we have somebody acting in Pharaoh's office. Somebody who has been given all the Pharaoh's authority. Somebody who has a symbol of divinity. And they ride on a chariot. Did you know, saints, that the Hebrews call God's throne a chariot throne? They say that He's enthroned between the cherubim, and the cherubim are envisioned as a moving throne platform that God rests upon. Are you beginning to see a picture here? During difficult years, God would raise up a man in whom all of his authority was invested in, in whom divinity was invested in. He would ride upon God's thrones, Daniel says, and upon the clouds. He'd be called the Son of Man. And dealing with him would be the exact same as dealing with God. Thus they put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Without your logos." Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath-Paneah. This in their tongue means "savior of the world." How about that? Zaphnath-Paneah, the savior Are we seeing some strong parallels to Jesus? The first guy that I could think of that had a profound example of logistics was a type, a shadowing type of the Savior of the world, who incidentally, John says, is the Logos, the Word. I say all of this to say that God Himself has appointed one man above all of the others. He gets you what you need when you need it for a given purpose. And the purpose is the advancement of His kingdom. Turn with me then to Acts 3. We're going to be in Acts for just a couple minutes. I already put you all to sleep? No. Hey, what kind of God could have written 1,600 years before Jesus ever lived those kind of things and then have Jesus actually act them out? Isn't that amazing? It's almost like the writers had some kind of help, huh? In Acts 3. Listen to the way that Peter says this. Look at the 19th verse. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that He may send the Christ Who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. For he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Peter preaching said, One man had been appointed, much like Joseph had been appointed, and like Moses spoke about, he would be raised up, and his job was to restore everything. But if you didn't listen to him, you were cut off from the people of God. One man has been appointed, and he's in charge of all of the logistics. He owns everything. He has everything. He's an heir of everything that is God. And he can get you whatever you could possibly need. But if you don't listen to him, you're completely cut off. Turn to Acts seventeen. Here how Paul says the same thing. In Acts seventeen, start in verse twenty nine. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to all men by raising Him from the dead." One man has been appointed. If you don't listen to him, you're cut off. He's appointed as a judge. And the proof that he is who he says he is is that he told everybody he would lay down his own life for our benefit and take it back up again. How many of you could close your eyes, raise your hands, and say, I give up my spirit and die? You can't choose that moment. But Jesus did. Nobody takes his life from him. He chose to willingly give it up and he took it back up again. Would you say that puts him in a special class of people? Hebrews says he's declared to be a high priest forever because he had an indestructible life. Go ahead and look at the first few verses of Hebrews. Turn to the right in your Bibles. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God spoke in the past through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being sustaining all things by His powerful Word. One man's been appointed. All that God has, everything, and that God has everything, is His. And He transfers it through people, materials, energy, all of those things for a given purpose. We better find out what His purpose is. better find out what it is that He wants done if we want to be on His team. Because He is the judge. And if we don't listen to every word that comes out of His mouth, we're completely cut off from God's people. How often have you heard that, saints? The truth is, the gospel that is usually preached is God wants you rich. God wants you blessed. God thinks you're a wonderful person. God has got a giant lollipop that He wants you to lick. That's the gospel. You say, anybody want to lick the lollipop? Run to the altar. We'll give you a donut, a gift certificate, and stamp a name on a pew. That's usually the gospel. Nothing's required. Nothing's asked. Save from what? To what? I don't know. I just got an insurance policy. I'm telling you that God saved you for a specific purpose. He wants to transfer knowledge. He wants to transfer power. He wants to transfer material. He wants to transfer something of substance to other people and He will use you to do it. He's like a logistics officer. How did God feed those people that were crying out to Him day and night in Matamoros? Well, He had to raise up somebody who was willing to do what He said to do. Who fed him? God did. Who were his hands and feet? Well, what do we call a church? The body of Christ. I am looking for more ways to be the body of Christ. Not in creed only, but in deed also. Turn to Ephesians 1. Be to the left in your Bible. This is some super good stuff that you're fixing to hear. I can say that because I didn't write it. The guy wrote it from jail. Eighteenth verse of first chapter. I pray also that your eyes, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. God took one man, seated Him at His right hand, gave Him all authority in heaven and on earth, and a name above every authority that could be given, and made Him your captain. That means when He speaks, we move. That means when He says, don't move, we don't. That's the way this was supposed to work. And somewhere, we've degenerated into two thoughts. One is that Christianity is something that happens in a special place where you meet with God for an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday or if you go to my church, maybe three or four hours on one of those days. And we see church and we see Christianity as an event. What I'm suggesting is that God has appointed one man whose whole life was poured out for you as an example, so you could be an extension of him in a lifestyle that serves God and not in an event. Do you know that rich people have charity auctions and things, right? Because it's easy just to write a check. Now, some checks are easier to write than others, but what we're looking for is not somebody who simply writes a check, but somebody who will actually work in the mud. You understand? God rarely uses, He does use, but He rarely uses just the philanthropist that has as much money as God and just gives it away. I mean, wouldn't you think that we could gather together a few famous people and meet all the needs of everybody everywhere? But then what would happen? You know, we would rename some of these cities after those famous people, wouldn't we? We'd bow down and pay homage to them. God gets no glory from that. You know where He gets glory? from taking simple, humble people who others don't think have much and providing for many. That's where the heart of God is. You don't believe me? Then why did He take a first century Jewish carpenter and provide salvation for the whole world? Personally, I would have chosen a king. Or at the very least, a rock star. Right? Right? Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, really brings this home. we can all agree that you didn't do anything to get saved, right? How many books have been written about that? The problem is it's been taught so much, you didn't do anything to get saved, it's just an act of grace. It's been emphasized so much that the church has been lulled to sleep thinking that we're saved and we don't do anything. That's not what it says. It says that you didn't do anything to get saved. If you're already saved, it's going to go on to tell us there's lots for you to do. Through faith or trust, and this not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by work so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship. That means that Misty was designed by God, created, engineered, put together for a specific reason. That means that Caitlin was too. Or Nick. Or dare I say, even Judah. Workmanship. Now why do you design something specific? Why a half ton truck versus a three quarter ton truck? Well, because one's designed to pull a little different load. Not mine. Mine's designed to be in the shop. Actually, God is very close to four dollars. Do you know why? He liked the broken and contrite in heart. An engineer at some point put pencil to paper and said, to be able to get out of this person what I need, this is the design that I need. Your lives were constructed that way. When God made Beth, when He fashioned her, He fashioned her in a way that He could get something specific out of her. She has a purpose for being on the globe. There's a reason. We call that a calling. And when you see somebody maybe playing an instrument and they're playing it well, but then they go drive nails for a living, they say, I think he may have missed his calling. It's worked its way into our culture, but we don't know what it means. It means that you were uniquely crafted by God for something. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Think about how good God is. Let's talk about a logistics captain. Number one, He's the Logos. He was there in the very beginning. Actually, the phrasing is, He's there before there was a beginning. And you know what He did? He began to speak forth His Word so that everybody on the earth could be provided for when they needed it. A people yet unborn could be provided for. Do you know that Jesus prayed for you? That's a weird thought, isn't it? John 17 says, I'm not praying for them only, but for those who will believe through their message. We serve the kind of God that lays out there for you what you need before you even know you need it. If you've ever read the second chapter of Genesis, this is a great example. God knows that Adam needs a wife. God knows it's not good for man to be alone. That's not my opinion. The Word actually says that. God said it's not good for man to be alone. He has in his mind to provide a wife for Adam. You know who doesn't know he needs a wife yet? Adam. Yeah. So God brings all the animals before him so that he can see they're in pairs of two. See how they reproduce all of those things, how God's plan is to fill the earth with them. He goes, dude, I'm missing something. God said, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Pulls it right out of Adam's side. It was there all along. He just didn't know it. What is it that God could pull out of you? What is it that God has designed you for that you need with all of your heart like a car needs gas? And you don't know it. I would suspect that if we will stand up before our Creator and begin to say, Lord, You know what I need more than I do. It's not a house You need. I bet it's a sense that You are fulfilling His divine purpose for your life walking out the deeds that he has called you to walk out. You know what's the problem with two classes of people? This just the truth and young throw something I didn't provide you him though. So you don't have anything to throw at me. Our teenagers kill themselves because they are bored. Bored. They have no sense of purpose. In our country the same thing happens with our senior citizens. There's no reason to live. There's nothing left to do. Didn't just retire from job, I retired from life, so they go park in front of a machine to gamble, because I got nothing to do. You never retire from the kingdom of God. God is in the business, He's in the business of looking to see what people need and then sending you to meet those needs. Your lives are not your own anymore. That's what the gospel is about. You say, well, I'm not going to Mount Well, it's okay. There's people right out here. You don't have to drive eight hours to find a person. I bet if you walk out of this building, you could bump into one. Have you ever met a person that truly had no need? I met some of the wealthiest people in Houston. And I'll tell you the truth, they're the neediest, just in a different way. You know, when somebody has a lot, people talk to them a certain way. You know, those are nice shoes. What a beautiful house you have. Everything that you do is wonderful, right? And that person sitting there thinking, are they nice to me just because I've got money and they want some? Or are they nice to me because they like me? What a, I've never had to be in that position. <laughs> you know what they might need? Friend, I love you and your life looks great on the outside. But the truth is, you seem rotten to the very core. You need to get saved. <laughs> well, I never. It's okay. Now you have. <laughs> so, okay. Hey, need more friends that tell you things like that. See, there's all kinds of famines that you can have. Amos, I must spare you from having to turn to Amos. Amos, in the eighth chapter, speaks of a time period where an entire nation would mourn, like somebody mourning for an only son, and the sky would go black in the middle of the day. Can y'all think of a time that ever happened? It's at the crucifixion. And he says, And I will strike the land. With a famine, but not a famine of food or water, he said. A famine of hearing my word. A spiritual famine. I'm suggesting that Joseph met a natural famine. He stored food so that he'd have something to give, but natural famine, lack of food, is not the only kind of famine people have. In fact, in this country, we think we hear the word of God so much because there's a church on every corner. There's somebody preaching asking you for your money on every channel. So we think that we have the Word of God. And the truth is, all we have are lots of words, but not God's Word and His divine purpose for our life. Our church wants to raise up lives that are truly changed. See you function in the ministry that God has for you. And for one, that might be working in a prison. For another, it might be being the very best production manager of a business. For another, it might be a preacher. For another, an occupational therapist. But the bottom line is, there should be a sense that you are doing what God called you to do daily in your life. And you know what comes with that? A profound sense of fulfillment. Some might even call it the abundant life. Turn with me to Matthew 25. I'm only going to read you a couple more scriptures. I'm going to say something that sounds incredibly redundant. When Jesus saves my life, when He saves me, He saves my life. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Of course, that's what it meant to be saved. No, it's more than that. It's not just that I got saved from a life of sin. That's true. That happened. It's not just that I got saved from destructive behavior. That is true. That happened. The most profound thing that happened, though, as I look back on it, is He provided for me a divine sense of purpose. That, more than any other thing in my life, has protected me. More than any other thing in my life, that has guided me. It's how I've chosen the jobs that I've had, the cities I would live in, even my wife and the number of kids that we would have. A divine sense of purpose has filled me since I was born again. Now, some saw it and said, Oh, that young man's just arrogant. Arrogant. Now I felt important because the God of the universe spoke to me. You're no less important. That Acts 17.26, what I didn't read you just before it, said that God determines the times and places you would live and work so that you'd reach out and find Him though He's not far from you. That means that He's arranged even your seating in the room because He desires for you to feel a sense of importance that you were picked for a purpose. It's unfortunate that if you teach people that they came from animals, a purposeless, random existence, they begin to act like animals. If you teach people that a sovereign, loving, compassionate, benevolent God created you for a purpose and you're His workmanship, they act like God. I'm in the business of teaching people to act like God. And what does God like? Well, let's read Matthew 25 starting in the 34th verse. The king will say to those on his right, I'm going to try hard not to make a political commentary, but you might read a little more into this than is there. I was speaking one time and a lady gave me a problem and uh, I remember to this day she was sitting on my left. you know how I know where she was sitting? Because all the problems come from the left. No, I'm kidding. All right. The king... I'm sorry, Jesus. That that was bad. I've been watching Fox News. Y'all forgive me. I watched CNN for an hour. It'll balance it out, right? A week of Fox went. One... Okay. Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. How long has the kingdom been prepared for you since the creation of the world? But it's our job to walk in it. You hadn't been here since the creation of the world, have you? So God's plans for your life long preexisted your life because in the beginning was the Logos who is in the business of logistics. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Does anybody need a seminary degree to hand out water? No? In fact, you probably could do this without much education at all. You know, they looked at the early church, the religious establishment, and they said, these are unlearned, untrained men. But they took note, Acts 4 says, they had been with Jesus. You know why? Because of their actions. We value what people say entirely too much. We get impressed with our own wording. We like to read the things that we've written and impress ourselves and talk to people and you say, hey, would you prove this? But really what you want is for them to admire your wording we need to learn to place a lot less value in what somebody says. Because the truth is, the truth is, most of the time their actions don't represent what their words do. I wish that that was not the case. I would like simply for us to say yes, and our yes is yes. But how many times has somebody said, I love you, and their actions show they hate you? How many times? Come on, ladies, tell me the truth. How many times has somebody said, I love you, and their actions show they value you very little. Yeah. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer the Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You want to do something for God? Anybody in here want to do something for God? Three of you want to do something. What am I doing here? We'll start selling pitas or something. Anybody want to do something for God? Do something for your fellow man in His name. God is in the business of transferring things. He just needs somebody who will work as a medium, not in the spiritual weird sense, a medium as in something energy can pass through, to do it. Did God deliver His people from Egypt? But He used Moses to do it. Did God split the Red Sea? Yes, but He did Moses. He used Moses to do it. He needs people to work through. We are His chosen vessels. That ought to make you feel important. None of you are a mistake. Your dad could have been a drug addict. Your mom could have been a drunk. You might have been told all your life you were a mistake. But according to God's Word, you are His workmanship. One of the first times I was ever touched in my life, I listened to an African-American pastor preach a message that said, I am not a mistake. His mom was pregnant through a rape and she was a uh, druggie. And so he grew up with the thought that it was just an accident. And when he realized that he was designed by God, it turned his life around. That's amazing, isn't it? What we need is a sense of purpose. You know how you get it? You have to throw a line in the water. Somewhere you have to give somebody clothes. You have to give somebody a bottle of water. You have to do something outside of your own circle. Oh my God, he's going to push me to do something. Yes, get out of your parents' basements, your apartments, your houses, wherever you're hiding, and go be the salt of the earth. Say, but I I need structure and I need a church program. Don't give me garbage. You don't. You know what you need? Courage. The courage to try. He's going to list an entire group of people here that he calls cursed. The angels are going to take them to weeping and gnashing of teeth because they would not try. I spent years preparing theologically. I have. I spent years studying God's Word. And if I had not a Bible or any of that knowledge, I could still probably accomplish something for God because I would try. See, it's not dependent upon my ability. It's dependent upon my willingness to try. The difference between a sheep and goat is those who tried. That's it. Are you willing to try, church? Church, are you willing to try? See, it's hard to even get us to speak in church. We're so used to just sitting back and receiving. Christianity is not a passive religion. If you are a part of a Christianity that is passive, Well, I won't tell you what to do. The Word of God will tell you what to do. But you might consider that it's not authentic Christianity. It doesn't matter how poetic, how handsome the pastor. It doesn't matter how good you feel about being there. If it is passive, then the first century revolutionary who turned the whole world upside down wouldn't recognize it, and he's certainly not the Lord of it. Psalm 33. We're going to read the 13th verse. I know, y'all are ready for me to be done, but I have more I want to tell you, and then I'll be done. I told you a few weeks ago I was through worrying about that kind of stuff. If you didn't believe me, you do now, huh? I don't want to give you more than you can absorb, but the truth is, is it's been about 35 minutes. And uh, I have two more scriptures that I think will be good for you. If you work very hard and focus, I don't know, like you were watching a season finale of Friends, You may be able to uh absorb something that would affect your life psalm thirty three starting in the thirteenth verse from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. How much of mankind does he see? Somebody's watching me. You remember that from the eighties yeah, always feel like somebody's watching me. They are God is watching you, and what is he doing? He's going to consider everything you do. Watch, it says, uh, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Why does this not say, I've been watching you, Brad, and I have considered all that you believe? God doesn't care what you believe. He does not care what you believe. You don't even know what you believe. You know how you know what you believe? See what you do. An apple tree can think it's a pear tree all day long. It can believe it. It can believe it. But if it is spitting out apples, what is it not? A pear tree. You know, that's really not that complicated. In church life, we are used to listing our points of what we believe. In fact, we believe them so much that we won't fellowship with you because item 13.6 is different. At the end of the day, are we doing something in the field of logistics for God? Taking something from a point of origin, the Creator, to somebody who is in need for a specific purpose or not? Well, maybe item 13.6 is not so important. It can be. It can. I'm not into unity for the sake of unity. Let's just water it all down to where it makes no difference. You call God a dog or a goat, but I call him a divine living being, but it's okay. It's not okay. I'm I'm not suggesting something absurd. I'm saying let's quit majoring on minor issues and let's do something for God. He considers all that we do. And you know what? If I'm being beaten for the gospel in a foreign country in a jail cell, and I think that you ought to baptize by dunking somebody under the water and you think that they are to be sprinkled, I'm not going to care a bit. Not a little bit. You know what I'm going to notice? Are you taking a beating with me? Or are you hiding? Are you denying Jesus? Or are you strengthening me and standing with Jesus? Do you really think that some of that matters when persecution increases? We have the luxury of it mattering right now. But if you get busy doing things for Jesus... I tell you, Usto and I in some ways are worlds apart theologically and I couldn't care less. It provides something interesting to talk about when we ride together in the car. But that's it. You know why? He's interested in doing the same things I'm interested in doing. He has what the Bible calls good eyes. Matthew speaks about it. It says, A person with a good eye is full of light. A person with a bad eye's whole body is full of darkness. And how dark is that darkness? And you go, What? It's because the Jewish people taught that a good eye is the one who has his eyes on what God has his eyes on, specifically, charity. And if your eye is on what God's eyes are on, your whole life will be full of God's goodness. If your eye is bad and is not, if it's selfish, not on what God's eyes are on, then your whole life will be full of darkness. What a strange transition. He goes from talking about eyes to nobody can serve two masters. You love one, hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. And you go, how do we go from eyes to money? Because he was talking about selfishness and greed the whole time. We just missed it. He considers all they do. No king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Somewhere out there, somebody that you're specifically designed to interact with. Somebody, somebody that Angie was uniquely created to mesh with is waiting. And they have this hope. Maybe it's a hope that's unspoken, but it's a hope. I wish there was somebody that understood me. I want to be close to God. I just don't know how. Maybe they're in a spiritual family. Or maybe, she's going to Guatemala soon, maybe there's somebody on the other side of a great ocean that has seen a vision, that has been prepared. And it's not a spiritual famine they need. Maybe they just need a plate of food. And she's been designed to bring that there. What have you been designed to do? We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May Your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in You. What happens if Cody puts his hope in God, but the person designed to help him, the person designed to bring him the thousands of pounds of food right before the hurricane says, No! I would rather build the gymnasium. No! I would rather... One church cut off missions so they could plant more trees. What happens when the people of God say no? You ever read in Romans 8.35? says, What shall separate us? From the love of Christ, shall heights nor depths nor blah 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 all the way through angels and demons, right? What shall separate us? You know what'll separate us, you? Well, how could how could Jennifer separate me from the love of God if she's the person who is supposed to bring from God something to Michelle and she says I don't like Michelle very much? Something has separated us, and it was not height, or depths or an angel or a demon. The most powerful thing in the universe is your free will because it's the only thing that God does not exert pressure over. And when we choose no, the work of God goes undone. I refuse to say no any longer. You ready for your last scripture? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen, right? Hey, yeah, yes. Are you all ready for your last scripture? Okay, turn to Kings. First, Uh, we're going to be in the 17th chapter. Joseph's famine was literal food, right? Amos' famine was spiritual food. We have a famine in the King 17 that is both. It is both spiritual food and natural food that is lacking. It is always easier to see something natural and meet that need. You know why? You can touch it. You can feel it. You can test drive it. You can see the effect that something has. Right? I know that this kid wants a teddy bear. Give him a teddy bear and what do I get to see? Oh, their eyes light up. Their tears well up. I God, I'll take a picture of that in the church and cry. You cannot see some needs though. But our God, who is the author of logistics, knew the need before the people even did. And so He puts in our hearts things that might seem strange, like prophesying to an internet camera. Do you know who it's not strange to? The recipient. So we need to take ourselves out of the position of judging whether or not God's methods are effective. We need to take ourselves out of the position and go, ah, I don't know about that. Just do what He says to do. Otherwise, what are you? Completely cut off from His people. Funny how that never makes it into sermons. What we do is talk about ridiculous theological inventions like uh, God's permissive will. Please. Please, do you really need a degree to know that that is a crock and not the shoes? Do you really need a degree to know that? Who on earth has a permissive will? Nicholas, what I want you to do is this. But if you don't want to, you could also do this. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) It ought not be up for debate when God speaks to us to do something. Now, I want to tell you the devil's subtle. He doesn't tell you that you're debating with God. What you think you're doing is debating with yourself. Is that me or is it God? Well, let's ask ourselves a question. Will it pass the crucifixion test? So, What do you mean the crucifixion test? Does it in some way crucify your flesh? If it does, it's probably God. If it glorifies your flesh, if it's something that makes uh, flesh happy, it might not be God. Deliberate for a while. If it passes the crucifixion test, just shut up and do it. Or speak up and do it. Whatever the case may be. You can never convince me that the devil is going to tell you to go witness to somebody. What interest would he have in that? Well, I could get slapped. Good. It's, It's to the glory of Christ. Doesn't the Bible say that? We just don't believe it. Even if they took your house from you, Hebrews says that's a good thing. So, sometimes we've reasoned God out of our reasoning. You ready for Kings? Yes, it's the last scripture, of course. We have a one o'clock, so y'all are lucky. We have a one o'clock appointment, right, Jim? Okay. Okay. In 1 Kings 17, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Am I the only one that strikes as ironic? I don't know who in here has the least. Uh, I really don't. But for argument's sake, we're going to say that it is Darnell. And uh, let's say that everybody knows Darnell is the poorest person in the church, right? And uh, who likes to eat in here the most? Well, that would be me. And so God says, Eric, since you like to eat so much, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you to Darnell's house because she's the poorest. Why, Lord? Well, maybe I have something Darnell needs that wasn't in the discussion. And maybe Darnell had something that I needed more than food. Hmm. So he's going to a widow at Zarephath. Uh, verse 10, So he went to Zarephath when he came to the town gate, a widow with there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And please bring me a piece of bread. <laughs> well, he's not shy about asking for what he wants, is he? Right? I want water. and hey, give me some bread. You have not because you ask not. As surely as the Lord your God lives. You hear that? As surely as the Lord your God lives. If He's the Lord your God, who's He not? The Lord my God. Right? If we're praying and I say, well, I'm praying to the God of Fred Hall. Doesn't that kind of indicate I don't have a relationship with Him? Okay. Well, surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. At least she had that. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You thought my cooking was bad. She's ready to go home and die. Would you say that that is despair? See, Elijah thought he was going there to be fed. He's really going there to feed. He's going to feed her. She has no purpose in life. She's ready to die. They say that if your dog is older... And uh well along in years, and maybe it's life is nearing an end. If you bite a puppy, it'll live longer. Isn't that interesting? I don't think it's true with my dog. My dog's pretty selfish, but it's true with some because it suddenly has a purpose in life. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Really? <laughs> Eat and die? But first make a small cake of bread for meat from what you have and bring it to me, then make something for yourself and your son. It is an interesting thing. For God to provide for us the things that we need, He always requires something. He requires a level of trust. How much trust do you think it takes for her to make something for the prophet when she only has enough for her to eat and die? But she's going to make something for the prophet which shows she believes the word that he gave. And this opens the doorway of trust for the captain of all logistics named Logos, to bring her all that she could possibly need. Watch this. For this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So, so there was food every day for Elijah, for the woman, and for her family. Elijah went there to eat, but it provided food for her and all of a sudden she has a purpose in life. She's not just existing to die. She's also existing for the work of God. She's supporting a prophet to an entire nation. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word, the Lord had spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son?" I promise I'm only going to keep you a few minutes, but does that seem harsh? When God said, uh, uh, Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there. Did he say anything about a son who would die or a widow who had a sin problem? Uh Uh-uh. Not at all. When Elijah showed up and began speaking with her, weren't they just talking about food? Mm -hmm. See, but the captain of logistics, the Lord that we call Logos, the Word of God, he knew about needs that he didn't tell any of these two people about. And he's working in the affairs of human beings to meet those needs. Now, one need that becomes evident needed, if it's already been met is that they all need to eat, right? God knows you need to eat. He's going to provide for you food. Even if he has to bring it in a dodge to you. He's going to bring you what you need to eat. You know what else she has a need for? She says, have you come to remind me of my sin? That sounds like somebody who's having trouble sleeping at night, doesn't it? Yeah, What about him reminded her of her sin? Was it something he said? Well, nothing was recorded. I bet it's what he was doing. I bet he did things for people that made her feel bad. A righteous lifestyle will preach to somebody far more than a sermon will. I preach the sermons. What do you do? Live the righteous lifestyle. Right? Amen. And to kill my son. Now, if you're Elijah, how do you respond to this? You ungrateful old hag and you leave, right? No, you, you would say it in a more churchy way. You would say you ungrateful miser and leave, right? Now, what would you do? This person's just slapped your face. You didn't do anything to hurt their son. They're blamed. Are you saying I killed them? I've seen people in church break down into a full-blown fight over an insinuation over a football game. My very first church event as a Christian, two men got into a fist fight on a softball field. When I say Christian event, I really meant church event. Yeah. So how do you think the average person acts when they're accused of killing someone's son? They're offended and they leave. God is looking for a group of people that are so heavily invested in transferring what God has given them to a person in need for a predicted purpose that they're willing to get slapped along the way. It's when you're good and offended that people really get a chance to see whether or not you love them. If you and I are only ever nice to each other, then how do you know that my love is sincere? But if you have a bad day and you say, well, you know, not only are you bald, but you're fat too. And I still love you. Then you might know that something is sincere in it. So God has provided for the surfacing of a problem. It does two things. It lets Elijah know where this widow's real need is. And it lets the widow know that Elijah really does care for her. Sometimes the problems that arise in our lives just arise for these reasons. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to an upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return. What if he gave up after the first one? Or the second? People of God need to be... uh, It needs to be impossible for you to be offended. And you need to be persistent to the point where once, twice, you don't strike out. You keep working. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah took this young man into his close personal space. He took him into his house. Usually when we minister, we want to minister to somebody at a great distance. Don't come into my house. Don't see where I live. We want to minister out somewhere in a church building, at an event. Real ministry is your lifestyle and it brings people into your close personal circle. Then did you see what Elijah did to put life in this boy? He stretched himself out on top of the boy. Paul does the same thing in Acts with a young man named Eutychus who falls from the second story of a window while Paul preached, hear me, on and on. (laughs) He fell asleep, he fell out the window. Paul also laid on him. This is because when we get eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, with other people, what's in us gets on them. But if they only see us on a stage or at a distance or on a TV channel, what they see is a mirage. It's not real. Real Christianity is spread through your actions and it's spread in a lifestyle that you live among people, salt of the earth. If you don't think that it works, watch this. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. She didn't know it before. She called Elijah's God your God. But now she's saying, Now I know that the things you've told me is true. Why? Was it because of something he said to her? She saw someone who was dead now alive. When you go out into the world, when you leave this place, people in the restaurants you go to, people in Walmart, should begin to see that something is different about you. You are no longer dead, but you are alive. Because you've come eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, with the King of Kings, Jesus. And now what was in Him resides in you. The same power that raised Him from the dead. And why did He do all of those things for you? so that you can be His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. This week, more than just Matamoros, you find somebody at a mailbox, at Walmart, at Panera Bread, at your coffee house, and you be God's hands and feet in their life. I have a cousin that somebody bought a Happy Meal for, or something of the like that she didn't know. And it was the biggest answer to prayer in her life and the biggest witness of God. She has a cousin who is a pastor and is surrounded by people who believe in miracles and been healed of cancer and all kinds of things. But the biggest witness of God in her life was somebody bought her food at Burger King. I wonder what you were designed to do and who's out there waiting for you to do it. Stand to your feet. I make you a deal. If you come back next week, we'll dismiss before we did today. I really do love you. And we could have quit right after the slideshow and that would be enough. But if you are used to going to church week after week and nothing about your life truly changes, you need to ask yourself, why are you going? Would you go to a car mechanic and bring car week after week and nothing about your car was ever different? You need to find out what is it that you want from God? That you want from a ministry, you want somebody to pat you on the back and just tell you you are a wonderful human being, stare in the mirror and lie to yourself. You don't need to pay somebody to do that. Why is it that you walked in here today? Is it because you are in love with Jesus, and with all your heart, you want to just be a little more like him, grow a little closer to him? Well, then you may have come to the right place. That's where our heart is too. We will not get everything perfect. I'll mess up a lot. You don't know me every time. But our heart is 100% sold out for being doers of the Word. And you're invited into that. Every one of you. And if you're not here, we'll miss you. But we'll go on without you. We want you to join with us in this vision of doing the Word. Amen? Amen. Then let's pray. Hey, can we do something really weird and Christian-like? y'all join hands? Oh, no. Yeah, across the aisles the left and the right,